welcome to Healthcare 360. I'm your host, Scott Burgess. Join me in welcoming my guest as we'll discuss the ins and outs of the healthcare landscape and examine what is really happening inside big healthcare. Today, we'll have a transatlantic conversation with today's guest from Germany, Mr. Bjorn von Siemens, a recognized thought leader in the areas of applied IoT and AI technologies in healthcare. Hailing from a family of tech industrialists and medical thought leaders, Bjorn possesses of a native drive and understanding for applying technologies to solve challenges in healthcare. We'll discuss the global challenges of data, the risk of innovation, and incentivize solutions for hospitals. Learn how Bjorn's grit, passion, and persistence is creating traction with this goal of ultimately improving our society through better human health. Glad you're here to join us. And welcome, everyone. This is Healthcare 360 again, and this is your host, Scott Burgess. I have a very special guest. We have Mr. Bjorn von Siemens of Siemens Family on with us. We are with the same corporation with uh, with Care Syntax that uh, you founded and co-founded with Dennis Hogan. Welcome, and thank you for being available. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be with you. The Siemens name, I'm sure you get that a lot in all your travels. I, we know that you travel internationally. We know that uh, you have a, a lot in your plate for what you're trying to do. What is it like being a part of the Siemens family and, and everything that your family has accomplished throughout the years? I, mean, I have done a good amount of reading on you, and I got to tell you, I'm ultra excited just to ask you some questions. The depth of what your family has done and now to segue into what you're doing is it's remarkable it really is uh there's so much of a story there and i can't wait for everyone to hear it thank you scott i think that uh, definitely there is positive momentum and kind of a positive surrounding around the brand of siemens and the family of siemens so i'm very proud to be part of it on the one hand um on the other hand it's also quite a large family by now. So both in terms of what the company's achieved and where the family is, it's it's independent stories by now. I think hopefully we can kind of continue to cross-fertilize from the company to the family and vice versa in terms of the family breeding some entrepreneurs and um, people that are working with the company and that generate positive uh, value um, in whichever field they're in. But I think for for me personally speaking, yeah, I've basically, I've worked with Siemens in a small capacity in 2005, but since then I've done things independently, collaboratively in terms of um, several projects that just had intersection with Siemens naturally, but also uh, we had intersections with GE or Philips or other companies that are Siemens competitors. So I think in that sense, it's a, it's a kind of, uh, from for me personally, other members of the family might be in a different position, but for me personally, except for carrying the the blood, so to say, and being a shareholder, I have a, a pretty pretty market distant relationship to the company. And so, in my undertaking of the medical market uh, and the companies I've worked with, especially in New York City, where I was for about ten years, uh, Siemens was a predominant. Uh, different markets are different reasons. Down here in Florida, it's about a fifty fifty, I would say, for the most part. The, the brand of Siemens, and not just in medical, but with the building automations and the different lines of solutions that the company offers is widespread and everywhere. Uh, for those who don't know uh, the background with Care Syntax and with Escape and everything that you're doing with surgical AI, it's profound. I completely and utterly believe that the only pathway forward is data, data management, data aggregation, and predictive intelligence going forward. I know that uh, you and Dennis hooked up. Um, you, you met at Harvard Business School. You started this whole venture back in 2010. Why don't you talk about origins of this, where it came from, uh, what spawned the idea, and really what intrigued you to get started in really big data management and predictive intelligence? So I think what, what Dennis and I shared and share is from a value perspective and from kind of a family background is both entrepreneurship and healthcare. Both comes from families of healthcare professionals on the one hand and business and, and entrepreneurs on the other hand. I think this was what uh, was a theme in our careers. Um, I was actually preparing in high school to study medicine. So I did, you know, chemistry in um as a focus or as a major, and in the, in the end, decided to go on the um, on the path of more economics um, when I when I went to university. I think the from a value perspective, that was something that brought us together. 
And then the most natural entry point was to do something different. I think that what you see in every industry is this data layer emerging and changing the game, so to say. And that is something that is happening in, in healthcare as well. And at a different pace, so much slower and um, in a different way than in a lot of other industries. But that still is very predictable because it creates a lot of value and because it's the right thing to happen. But it's very difficult to implement. And I think taking this challenge on is uh, is one of the was one of the ideas that Dennis and I had, and um, that then um, became a partnership, and that then became. A, yeah, a venture group or a venture that is now um, called Care Syntax, but that had also predecessor and it has a bigger vision of really, yeah, create stronger societies through better human healthcare. So it's really about human healthcare in the end and um, about making an impact. Agreed. And one of the questions I actually want to talk to you about was in part of the, the profile that everyone can probably read online, it talks about before Care Syntax, you had been an investor, an entrepreneur, and board members in different other different companies. Did some of those other companies help shape Care Syntax and, and escaping that you're leading into now? And then what was your role with all that and, and how did it contribute, if it did contribute at all, back to where we are today with Care Syntax? Absolutely. I think... I mean, we we are the results of what we uh, what we've done and experienced in our lives. So I think that we were privileged to see things and in, in healthcare early on in our careers. So I was in, in, back in two thousand five already, or even before that, I had the opportunity to work with companies in healthcare, such as Siemens Healthineers, but also insurance, big insurance companies. You know, my mother, being an intensive care physician, told me and able to, to tell me about what's going on in the hospital. So. We saw and we see a lot of the things that didn't go on and don't go well on the one hand. And then we saw how other industries are tackling that. And especially, of course, the um, integration of data, the availability of really precise information, standardization of processes, automation of processes. Those are topics that are clearly um, of huge value and tremendous value to healthcare, and that can help help also address some of the biggest challenges of healthcare, like better access to uh, to better healthcare for an increasingly aging population in in our countries and a, a growing population globally. And and so those those were things that we saw and that we also invested in prior to Care Syntax. And at the end, I think. What what is the the DNA of our group and of Dennis and myself is that we want to be entrepreneurs more so than just passive more passive investors, and I think it's just our this is our personality and our DNA that that drives this decision. But certainly we are of course trying to learn from from our mistakes um, and from from the mistakes of others that we that we were able to observe. In the in the prior ventures, as well as the the great successes that have been part of the journeys in other industries, where you know data solved and, and integration automation solved a lot of quality issues and a lot of efficiency issues. You and I both are privileged to be able to see some of the early prototypes that Care Syntax is developing right now. And when I saw the prototypes for the heads-up display technology, and when I was giving too much of that away, because I know we're still working on that. And what that roadmap looks like for uh, endoscopy-based procedures long-term and having a full deployment, hopefully within, you know, next year in 2020 towards the, you know, third to fourth quarter, it's completely outstanding. And I have never seen something that complex look so simple. Uh, when, when Dr. Woods annotates over and he actually explains, it's one of those viewings of, of watching something and you just say, why hasn't this been around forever? It's really that remarkable. Yeah, it's. I think it's remarkable what the team is working on and what uh, what kind of opportunities emerge. But also, we have to understand that just the simple solving the riddle of getting access to the data to build these algorithms is incredibly hard in in healthcare. It's it's much easier and straightforward in other industries because you don't have so many different vendors, you don't have so many different regulatory privacy and data protection hurdles that are there for the for the right reason. You need to start working within this framework 
And then um, we are now working on quite, you know, from an overall AI industry perspective, quite modest applications. And there's, I've seen very advanced AI um, applications in, in other industries that, you know, can, can do much, much more than we can do. But I think the value and the incremental value add of having those really, these applications running at the point of care, so with the surgeon or supporting the surgeon and the surgical team and decision-making uh, by pulling in, you know, the experience, the aggregate experience that we can can offer can really drive down the the complications and the risks dramatically. And so that's that's what you said. It's um, at the end of the day, it's quite simple in terms of the output. Um, but that's also the environment that we're in. I mean, if you want to impact the the already complex workflows of healthcare practitioners, of the surgeons and the teams, you cannot have something complex. You need to make things more simple. So it's um, it's that what we what we've learned throughout the experience as well now. So it needs to be simple. It needs to be easy to use, and it needs to come from the workflow and facilitate the workflow, not add to it. I think that's something that EMR and other IT applications actually have not succeeded in doing. They actually did not improve the efficiency and improve the workflow and improve the patient centricity. So the human element in healthcare was not supported through that because it just added another layer of inputs and complexity to the daily life of, of healthcare professionals. And that's what we're trying to reverse in a way. So to have more time for the patient and less time with everything that surrounds it for the people that are delivering care. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because the the mandate of the EMR systems in the United States for Cerner and Epic, that's exactly what it was. It was uh, a mandate. Everyone had to implement it two weeks ago. And I mentioned this in, a, in another podcast, not by name, but there, I was sitting down with uh, a CEO administrator of a large healthcare system and Previous to this gentleman being a CEO, he was also a CIO. What he told us at the meeting was it was really staggering. So he came back and he says, you know something? We have some type of this already installed. And But he goes, but all the data that we've collected from our EMR, we don't even know what to do with half of it. The parameters and metrics in place for those value sets that would give them the analytics and the data that they're going to need to make better decisions or just see why certain trends are happening to keep it really simple. They didn't know what to do with that information. So looking at how the AI, uh, well, if for, well, AI, I know it is, it's in development, but knowing how the software is developed now and where it's going to long-term with AI, it just, again, completely makes sense. And it's going to allow the users in these, these leaders to say, okay, here's what we want to correct or fix based on where they're at, because every hospital is a little bit different. And every healthcare system at large has uh, their, I guess, issues, if you want to keep put it that way. But this is a, a complete and natural segue for them to be able to use the data they already have and make it usable information. One of the other things you mentioned was about uh, healthcare safety and data and, and really the struggles to collect it from the healthcare side. What I find kind of interesting is why on the outside of healthcare, we can retrieve and pull any piece of data and information, and it can be collected on us. I was listening to a, a podcast late night, last night, where uh, Ed Snowden was talking about all the different variables that IMEI and IMEIA numbers of your cell phones and how it's being extracted and held as a data pool. But yet, and some of that, most of that information is not even uh, relevant or usable, but yet we can't pull simple information, even if we de-identify just to help build a database so we can do corrective techniques and improve patient safety. What do you find is the biggest holdup with the AI, the new software implementations, so they can use this data inside the hospitals? Yeah, I think that's different. And as, as you mentioned, maybe first going back to the access points, that this is definitely different from country to country and uh, from geography to geography. And I think that, you know, the U.S. has... Um, a lot of challenges in the healthcare system, but you found a, a good way how to make data collectible through the PSO model, right? So, so there is there is a way how to do this, and and then it becomes more a technical implementation challenge. In other countries um, or other geographies, like in Europe, we have very strong data privacy and protection laws, and everybody needs to be extremely careful not to 
violate them in any way because of course we we need to respect the laws and we and they're there for a good reason but it just makes it extremely hard to get to the quantum of data that you need to develop more generalist let's say machine vision technologies that can identify something so you need a larger pool of video or a larger pool of um, audio or of machine data to to get there so to to access that is a challenge i think we're you know, we're solving that. We are helping to solve that. Other players are helping to solve that. I think the other um, very fundamental challenge is that we have so many different data pools then. And if we're talking about longitudinal kind of patient pathways, really understanding steps in a treatment and healing process, hopefully of a patient, they are all in different data silos. So, you know, one is with a primary um, care physician, the other one is with the hospital, the third one is in the mobile phone of the, um, of the patient, you know, and, and getting to a point where we have all of this data in one place, we're very, very far away from it. And I think there's different building blocks. We are getting our hands on the, on the data and that is coming more from a hospital side, but we need, if we want to create bigger leaps in terms of value and in terms of improving the system, then we need to combine this data with other available data. And there, interestingly, I think some of the European countries have, because of the universal healthcare and because of their um, basically one-payer system, so and let's say France or Sweden um, or um, yeah, other geographies which have the same, they have actually quite complete patient records because you have you are insured with one party and this party knows at least where have you been, when have you been, and can access these data points to a certain level or has those data points. And with this information, combining it with some of the information that we have, plus maybe layering some insurance information on top, that already creates very interesting opportunities for for new applications to be developed and then the third challenge is the implementation and they're basically dealing with um, very complex organizations hospitals are big complex organizations that have a lot on their plate already and that are dealing with constrained budgets with increased pressure on quality um, and efficiency and so for for us to be convincing and for for us to be implementing these solutions, we have to uh, adhere to the existing workflows or try to embed ourselves in the existing workflows and make things better incrementally. And that's where I think our philosophy of, you know, doing step by step vis-a-vis kind of coming with a synoptic approach, we're going to change everything from zero to one in in a day or in a year or whatever. That's That's something that we... We have learned and we, we want to continue going um, into this direction um, in collaboration with, uh, with, uh, with the different healthcare ecosystem stakeholders that are there and within the existing workflows, improving steps from not from zero to 100, going from zero to 100 in terms of AI deployment or data integration deployment, but really going in increments that are digestible and that are implementable. So I guess, what have you seen in all your experience so far from going from geography to geography uh, in different countries has been the best implementation with this technology? Because I know we have over 6,000 installs and we have uh, large healthcare systems around the globe that are utilizing this our software and moving towards an AI solution. What's made them successful and what's made them get over that barrier of that early adopter mentality? In terms of our, in general, in our solution, we have pretty good cases in, in a lot of geographies. We have definitely good cases here in Germany, um, in, in Switzerland, and France. We have very interesting cases in as far as Australia and um, Asia, so Japan, Australia. And we have great cases that are in the U.S. Every time it's a little bit different in the way that the cases have been implemented. The issue, of course, is that we are still at a relatively early pilot level. So if we're talking about a rollout into thousands of um, hospitals with uh, with kind of a more unified solution, that's still ahead of us. And that's really what we're working on right now to make the solution scalable within a country and, with, um, and then across geographies. 
And I think there the interesting point that's what something that you mentioned earlier is in the end of the day, human healthcare is one language or one goal that the entire world and the and entire planet has. And the data that we are working with, which is video and to a certain degree, other kinds of data is also one language. So it's not restricted to one specific system, but it can really be used across geographies and the applications that we develop. They are not tied to one specific reimbursement model, but they're really kind of universal applications. And that's, of course, a, a huge, uh, yeah, a big motivator for us to go down this route. You mentioned uh, in your, your last comment, and I, I didn't want to forget about this point about the PSO. It's pretty unique to Care Syntax, and it's really unique to right now in the United States. What does that mean to the company? Can you explain to everyone what that is uh, in, in layman's terms? And then we can, we can dive right into that because that one point alone, I really think can help shape the next generation of surgical healthcare, uh, not just healthcare at large, but specifically in and out of the OR. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, and this is maybe one point that I would love for, you know, legislators around the world to kind of follow is, um, and I had a discussion with with our Minister of Health in, in Germany, Jens Spahn, the other day, and I was asking him, you know, he's he's mandating the the organ donor passport when are we going to get the data donor passport so that everybody donates their data that is generated in the system and that we all in the end pay for one way or another right throughout in taxes or something like this so i think this is something that in the us has been institutionalized through this pso quite intelligently and a pso a patient safety organization is essentially a, a federally created safe space to collect data that is not discoverable in any kind of legal or adversarial proceeding. And what this means is that the healthcare institution doesn't have to fear that by collecting data, it actually makes it or puts itself at risk to litigation, which is one of the primary concerns, at least in the US, but also in other countries, to actually collect data and unify data is to say, you know, in in case of litigation, if I don't have the data, then nobody can discover anything and make create a big case out of it. That's something that in the PSO model is very intelligently solved, and it has led to big successes and leaps forward in terms of efficiency and especially quality and patient safety already. And we are working on this in surgery, so we are the only PSO that has been launched in the surgical space so far. When we were sitting down at our, our meetings and we were going through those details, and we knew that this was coming back in July and what our goal was moving towards that. Uh, we don't mention by name that the folks that were aligned with that and that achieved that goal. It, it was really, it's amazing uh, that they did the work that they did in, in such a short amount of time with the outreach and, and vision that brings to the table in, in the PSO. I know that's going to solve a significant amount of issues, uh, one with privacy, uh, one with sharing information. Because uh, you know Mr. Tom Soleil, he's brilliant. Data should be free. Data should be easily cross-exchangeable and collaborative. And if when it's not, that's where you have those silos that we talked about briefly and we have misinformation. And it causes, at the end of the day, it causes more headaches and hardship for people to get better health care. And even if you break it away from healthcare for a moment, data that can't intertwine together this causes more confusion at large because there's too much information and you don't know how to put it together. That PSO really is going to help shape the next pathway of healthcare. I look at the PSO as more, more imperative into the market as far as its adoption than robots. Because right now, I know, well, we, we've all seen it on LinkedIn. There has to be at least at least six to seven robots that are now readily available once Intuitive lost some of their patents on uh, patent control. I'm looking at, okay, well, robots have their role and, and they have an importance in healthcare and simplifying and allowing different procedures to be done. It's the data at the end of the day that makes better decisions, more information usable and just more predictive so that the better outcome at the end of the day. And the ability to share that through the PSO, uh, and not just within you know one country, but cross-country as well, 
that's it's unbelievable really what's in front of us and the opportunity that community as humans have available to us at this moment but we just need more people to understand what that is and how to use it effectively exactly and we need to what we need now is organizations member organizations for the pso so hospitals and idns and providers to sign up for it and then we can start leveraging the power of the anonymized um, data that we that we have so it essentially becomes this data donation passport for a hospital that that I was wishing and that, that I'm wishing for here as well in in Europe and in, in other countries I know are, are working on similar concepts so I think it's 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 great and it will give us essentially the counterpart of the data that we need to complete the data puzzle from from the hospital side, which has been traditionally very difficult because of the non-existence. There will be so many opportunities ahead of us that at the moment we are really trying to zero in and focus on the ones that provide easy and good first steps into showing the value of what we're doing and what we can do with the data to then really scale up and create more, more applications and more clinical decision support healthcare quality and efficiency rise dramatically because that's really a possibility. And that then at this point, I think we're entering the surgery 4.0, so to say. I think, you know, we're talking now to surgery 2.0, maybe 2.5.0 with the, with the robots that are in the market, but they are still early robots, fully human and surgeon-guided robots. They don't have a lot of intelligent systems around them. They are not uh, context-aware and this is something that Care Syntax is providing, this kind of context awareness and the data that is really around and what happened before the surgery and after the surgery and how should the patient be uh, treated based on, on their individual history and on the population they're part of. So I think this, exactly this layer of intelligence that is needed to do a big step forward, which through the adoption of the current set of robots alone won't happen. They actually... There are some advances because of that, but they're also very expensive and they're at the moment really, yeah, not intelligent systems yeah. yet. It's command and response for the most part. There's some predictability in there on certain applications, yeah, but not to the mainstream that we would need it. Uh, real quick, just to make sure everyone knows, we're not talking robots and software that's you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator level. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's software that's human guided and developed based on video content that we go through and we break down all the good procedures, all the bad procedures. And going back to that early prototype that we talked about uh, on a heads up display, we can actually say, this is good. This is bad. Or we can give a predictor um, and I'm, I'm trying to be very vague, so so it's it's so proprietary to us. The software is only going to help that. But I, again, that's one example of why I don't believe that the robots that are in the healthcare market right now are really the the answer. I mean, they they are going to allow uh, different procedures to happen because they're just smaller and they can get into smaller spaces and they can do smaller things without with less harm. At the end of the day, it's all about the data still. Yeah, I just want to make sure we got our Terminator gesture in there as far as uh, what, you know, <laughs> Skynet is not going to happen, right? Um, <laughs> coming into the U.S. market, that was, a, that was a big step for the company. Were you nervous about that? For us, it was basically coming home because the company and the group was founded in the U.S. So it was really the goal from the get-go. I think we we took a step here, a few steps here in Europe that were necessary and they were maybe easier to do but i think the largest market for what we're doing is by far the us and it's the most advanced market as well in, in many ways and so we um yeah we are excited we we're excited about the traction that we see we're excited about the the level of yeah the sophistication of the people that we talk to and the level of sophistication of the providers and the uh, the other companies in in our ecosystem and the other organizations in the ecosystem that we see so it's really it's a both a, a challenge but it's also really a blessing for the company because being in the US really has a also a huge effect on the rest of the world progress and because i don't know if you see that when you're in the US but actually 
a lot of healthcare institutions and um, companies and technology is looking to the US. There's other pockets as well. Yes, there, there are some groups here in Europe as well and in, in, in Asia that are, you know, at the top of, of their league. But in general, for, from a technological perspective, um, the, the US is, and from a hospital management perspective, the US is being looked at as the leading country. That's great for the company. And I think you know, moving forward, we, we will do more. We will do more in the US, but we also have big plans here um, in Europe and in Asia. So we're trying to to cover the world in a way because of this universal language on the one hand, but also because we see that we can actually create unique opportunities to combine data sets that are available in one geography, but may not be available in the other geography. So if you're talking about, you know, again, going back to the one payer system, that gives us access to 80 million lives, so to say, and sometimes even or could be even for free because the government is opening these databases. And that can be then combined with the data that we have in the PSO. And that's, of course, kind of the, the hospital-based data. And that can be very, very powerful. That's even more of a strong point to kind of camp out on for a second about how important that the AI really is. But we are talking about 80 million people in a single-payer system cross seas and right now you know there's the affordable health care act in america uh, but combining all of the that head count and the procedures and then the doctors and then the nurses and all those notes that accompany that outcome of whatever that incident may have been uh, whether it be an emergency or a surgical procedure or even just an office visit it's even more important for the artificial intelligence to be able to go through that information quickly and effectively and be able to identify red flags for a human review to make sure that the information is accurate. Looking at an undertaking AI and software and, and reshaping uh, a culture that has a lot of room for improvement in healthcare, the financial backing of the company in its first round did very well. Uh, it just under $32 million in its first round of funding, big names backing it as well. One that I found most striking as far as uh, the importance was, was Barco. Barco, excuse my numbers if they're wrong, but I think they, they're actually 83% of all the backbone hardware and server hardware for 4K over IP integrated solutions in hospitals is provided by Barco. Is that correct? Somewhere around that number? Yeah, Barco is a leader in, in IP-based video transmission in, in the in surgery. So they have a phenomenal success there working with most of the big companies as OEM. So Barco is not known, but is in, in almost every hospital as OEM. So they are kind of the technology guys behind the big brands uh, like, you know, the Olympus's Marquee Strikers of the world. So that's really a very successful company. And yes, that was a big step that we took this year. I think there was also big steps that we took before that and great partners that have joined us and are joining us from kind of other industry segments or ecosystem parts of the healthcare ecosystem. But Barco is definitely one of the key partners also because they have this proficiency in video and video analytics. So working together with them will be, really enable us to scale our solutions, our software applications into many ORs very, very quickly once they're ready. When I first heard of Barco, and you, you'll laugh at this one, but I was at a movie with my daughters, and I, I think it was uh, The Force Awakens, and it was the 3DX sound provided by Barco. They were the backbone and systems that put that dynamic sound together. So they're not just a, a software-based company. They're also audio and visual just like you were saying. So when I heard the sound, I was like, oh my gosh, that's, I thought I was on a different planet <laughs> for a second. So that, that's where I first was introduced to Barco. And then when I learned more about them uh, in my days with my previous companies, uh, I understood they didn't utilize them when I was with the companies. I then learned about them really quick and what they're doing. And they really are the unequivocal leader in, in that space and what they're doing. And, and there's a reason why they have the, the highest majority of market share. How did uh, Mitsubishi get into play here. I know they're a big Japanese-based company. How do they feel about everything that Care Syntax is doing? I think that um, Mitsubishi and also a few other groups that joined uh, the last financing round, so to say, 
uh, Takeda Group, which is also a venture arm of Takeda Group, and Reliance uh, here from from Europe, sorry, from France, an insurance company. They joined because of pro reasons on the one hand, because of their deep understanding of the challenges that arise from surgery and from the inefficiencies of the surgical operation at the moment. And in the case of Mitsubishi, they are, through their subsidiaries, MC Healthcare, they are the largest GPO, so general purchasing organization and material flow organization in Japan. And so they have very deep insights into what's ongoing in the hospitals, what are their challenges on the one hand. And they also have in a consortium with other large companies, also insurance companies in Japan, they have um, a kind of a mandate, a soft mandate to change the way that healthcare is delivered because of issues that will and that are rising, the aging population, lack of qualified staff, cost explosion. And so they see care syntax and us as an agent of change, basically as a transformative agent that can support them in this broader mission. That's really, we are part of the puzzle, and I think we're at the moment a quite modest and smart, a small part of the puzzle, but we are an important part. And they see this, and they, through, through the commercial relationships and through their um, equity investments into the company, have basically made that point, uh, not only in saying it, but also in, in putting um, the investment in and the money where, where they're saying that for us it was really great validator on the one hand, and now also is going to be a very important yeah, proof point to the market in terms of further developing and scaling the solution. Because with these large organizations together, we are working on solutions that can be bundled together with what they are offering and maybe even what others are offering to create this very compelling, also financially compelling solution for hospitals that can be de- deployed throughout not only dozens, but hundreds of surgical theaters and operating rooms uh, very efficiently. These strategics are are great to work with, great investors and visionary investors as well. You wouldn't believe some of these people are extremely visionary about in their thinking. Some of the leaders um, and also people that that we're working with, great collaborators and now great basically channels for us to, to really grow the business. Yeah, it's certainly needed to ha- just to help drive down costs, especially costs for the the end user. Uh, but also, to, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, these hospitals, they're in business and they need to see healthy margins as well. But if the cost can be driven down of where everyone can benefit, I see that as just a win all day, which is great. Looking at, and you briefly mentioned other companies that have utilized Barco on the, on the backside. What's the adoption like? Or what are the fears like with the other companies? You mentioned quickly uh, Carl Storitz, Olympus, uh, the strikers of the world. What's their adoption doing in the market? And uh, what are some of their questions or concerns that they might have? So far, we, we've had, since Barco ended, which was six months ago, we've had very positive momentum and very positive interactions with most of these companies because in their DNAs, they are hardware companies on the one hand and their distribution companies. So they have their strengths lies in their model of having a rep in every hospital and having really the access to the clinical decision makers. That's their DNA. And so they don't have the the freedom and the agility to really develop these kinds of applications uh, that we can um, we are working on and that we can do. And that's why they're quite excited about the partnership on the one hand and in the conversations we're learning more about their their concerns and what also what they are working on and it's very very synergetic so we we can already see now that before that we had we also had interactions and we had great collaborations on project level but now on strategic level really we are really forming some powerful alliances that can allow us to scale the the AI that we're building i can see Everything you just said there very vividly, as a large corporation becomes larger through acquisition and growth, sometimes they become less nimble or being able to pivot quickly for new developments and to be able to catch up. Stock market, shareholders, things of that nature, because it's all about driving sales, et cetera. The fact that they are willing and they see the value in a startup in a smaller company with huge financial backing, uh, with really innovative technology 
uh, that can really cross collaborate. You know, there's different personalities in every in every hospital, and there's different mindsets of every healthcare system. And sometimes they, you know, like what they have, and if it's not broke, don't fix it. And I was at one hospital recently where they're still using an FTP protocol for data transfer <laughs> and and their work tickets. And I'm sitting there scratching my head. I'm like, man, that's like 1980s, man. They like it because it works and it, it didn't break down and it's reliable. And you can't argue with that. It's just the accessibility like you and I have into what's coming and what's there. It's very easy to get excited about it. And it's hard sometimes to put yourself in those positions where the people say, well, this is what we're using now. What's wrong with it? And trying to explain it. I'm glad that the collaboration effort against some of the, the largest companies in the globe in, in this in this genre are very open and accepting to it. So it, that's great. That's great to hear. Yeah, yeah and I, I want to caveat that though. So I think it's, I think we have great momentum on our level, but we are so small that it's kind of easy to relatively small uh, vis-a-vis you know multi-billion-dollar companies that it's easy for us to get good traction. If you're talking about a more kind of global rollout and change of the industry there's still so many barriers and this is of course something that we've we faced so far along our journey and that we anticipate to to face in the future and that really requires a lot of as we call it you know grit and passion and persistence to continue down this path because it's the yeah it's the right path but definitely um, the inertia in the industry is the biggest risk to the success of innovation. Yeah, agreed. In your estimation, from your seat and your travels, how long do you think a good majority of mass adoption is going to take for acceptance of this type of software, eventually which is going to morph into artificial intelligence and, and true machine learning or mach- machine vision? How long do you think that's really going to take to really get a stronghold in these healthcare institutions? Definitely multiple years. So I think there will be, and there are already ongoing, basically waves of digitization and there's different levels of integration that healthcare institutions and even surgical um, environments can have. So I think we will see gradual improvements until, until full adoption of autonomous systems in surgery. I think that really depends on the country and kind of specific application. So let's say, you know, if you talk about ophthalmology, we already have systems that are semi-automatic or fully automatic that operate on human eyes. There we already have this kind of integration, right? So it's right. Um, if, you, if you're talking about a complex neurosurgical procedure, uh, we're years away. So it's, it, it really depends on the a- application, in general, I think we're, we're talking about years, but as, as always, we, we overestimate what the next two years will bring and we underestimate what the next five or ten years will bring. So I think we'll, we'll see really some very, very big shifts over the next five to ten years. Two years are still in building up really the applications, showing the clinical value, showing that we can have this kind of impact that we're claiming that the technology can have. And then... It will basically be a question of which of the healthcare systems are willing to move quicker and really incentivize these solutions. Because the way to really get hospitals to move is by shifting incentives and by shifting investments or um, supporting investments even from, uh, from the payer side and from the government side. So if you give tax breaks, if you give investment support, if you if you pay for more for performance and not per case, then you will see different behaviors in terms of decision-making and quicker adoption of technologies. And that's, I think, something where basically on a political level, things need to, um, need to move as well. That, that goes back to Moore's Law, really where computers are going and how fast. I was reading an abstract last night so for the first time, a quantum computer has solved the problem that a, a typical computer cannot. You're exactly right. We overpredict two years. We underpredict five years. And I think a lot of the reason is because we just don't know really what's being developed on the backside on computer technology and how of that, that processor is going to be able to handle the bandwidth that we need. In talking to Tom, when we were talking about one of the devices that he's working on, I've never seen anything that powerful inside of a hospital. My only comparative to that would be something that I've seen 
you know, from one of the major endoscopy companies that's here in the United States. And it's, it, there's no comparison as far as the output and power. We're talking just on RAM alone, 64 gigs of RAM, of processing power RAM to be able to hold and perform what it needs to be able to do. I've never seen anything like that. Uh, I've seen maybe maybe two or three gigs of RAM. So it's on a completely different level. Knowing what you just said, what do you think the next steps are? Where do you think we're going and how are we going to get there? Speaking just from our basically vantage point, from our perspective, we love what, um, what we are seeing in terms of the development from a technology side. So what you mentioned is clearly, you know, technologies are available that can do wonderful and magical things that, yeah, that need applications. We want to continue building on these technologies we want to continue validating that technologies don't only have a theoretical value in healthcare, but actually can have practical impact. And there we're working with leading institutions and leading companies um, in our field to, to move that forward. And we want to definitely continue broadening our network of partners and um, you know, collaborators, commercial partners, investors, etc. So that's something that we're working on as well, and where we're, yeah, in very good discussions with with really the blue chip names of the industries of of our industry. And I think very importantly, and actually most importantly, we're a phenomenal team. So we're looking for collaborators and people who are as excited as we are about changing healthcare and changing the way that healthcare is delivered specifically in this case, surgery is, is performed. What I'm saying is, I think, you know, from the building blocks, what we, what we have is technologies that are mature or that are maturing. And we have, we have good financial backing. And now it comes down to really good people, and great, uh, great minds and, and doers to execute on this opportunity and make it a success for everybody, uh, for the patients, for the caregivers, and of course, also for uh, for ourselves as a business and as a company. I skipped over this in the beginning because uh, I, I wanted to be respectful of your time. I, I know you're very, very busy. Before we started the, the podcast, we were talking about your travels. How are you holding up? We know you're going from continent to continent, country to country, in different geographies. What, what's your typical day look like? What, what are some of the your travel schedule? Just listen to you for those few minutes. I was like, gosh, that, that is absolutely amazing. In general, uh, um, if you're asking, I think, myself or Dennis or other team members here in, in Cash and Text, I think we all have more on our plates than we could possibly cover in a day. So there's definitely so many opportunities and things to do. So, of course, we have to prioritize on the one hand. On the other hand, I think what what is very clear is that we have an important mission and that we believe is important and that others believe in important and that gives a lot of intrinsic uh, value and intrinsic motivation, at least to me personally, to to do what I'm doing and to go beyond work harder and uh, more than usual than maybe is usually viewed as a as a normal in a normal profession. So I think it's you know the entrepreneurial spirit and the the drive and the the values that we embody, even going back to to our family values that we have and the values that we inherited through our families, is very important. And we keep that in, in front of us as an inspiration and motivation. And that makes it easier to deal with it. Having said that, of course, it's a sacrifice that we make. And we make that and our families and friends, they get sometimes not not the best out of us or not enough time. Um, and maybe ourselves as well. And we're trying to keep healthy. We're trying to, um, I'm personally trying to, yeah, exercise daily and meditate and have a good diet and to keep, you know, spirit and mind and body healthy. And I think that's working better now than in the beginning. In the beginning, there was more disbalance. But now we, we're finding more balanced ways. And other than that, it's, it's also, yeah, it's inspiring and rewarding to travel Maybe not as much, but maybe at some point we'll be able to 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 balance it even further so that we uh, that we are more at home than gone. And I think maybe that's not too far away. But at the moment, we are we're in good spirits. We're positive. We're we're holding up well, despite a lot of yeah a lot of different forces pulling us into 
amazing opportunities and far away locations. My family shares your sentiments as well. They would love for me to be home a little bit more, you know, just make sure we're, we're present because it, it's funny when I've been in the healthcare business a very long time, just like you have, it, it's to help drive healthcare and to make a living at it and to help people. I tell my daughters all the time that, hey, daddy helps good people, help sick people get better. And that's my personal motivation in the morning. That That's what drives me literally every day in, in sticking in, in this healthcare business. But of course, it takes a lot of time too because it's it's a there's a lot of processes, there's a lot of steps, there's just a lot of relationships that have to be built and people have to trust on you and know that they can rely on you. So there's a lot that goes into it. And I don't even travel as much as you do as far as internationally. <laughs> and I'm just local. So I can only imagine what you go through. So thank you very, very much for taking this time. Help explain where the industry is going, where it really needs to go, and the undertaking that you're personally going through, as well as Dennis and all the team members of Cure Syntax. Final word is yours, Bjorn. Anything last you'd like to say? I think I, we, we said a lot of things, and I, I hope it's of value to the listeners um, that are listening to this podcast. I want to thank you for, for the great questions, and I hope we can move forward as envisioned to really change change the way healthcare is delivered and ultimately, as I mentioned in the beginning, improve our societies to better human health. Agreed. For all those who are listening, thank you again. Your uh, guest, Jörn von Siemens of Germany, and I'm your host, Scott Burgess. Thank you all. Take care. I wanted to take a minute to thank everyone for joining us today on Healthcare 360. It was my honor to have on the show Mr. Bjorn von Siemens to talk about his experience as a thought leader and entrepreneur in the business of healthcare artificial intelligence and big data. If you like Healthcare 360 and enjoyed the conversation, please share this podcast and give us a review. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you enjoy listening. If you want to continue the conversation, you can find us on Twitter at hc360podcast or healthcareturnkey.com. Thanks again. This is Scott Burgess with Healthcare 360. See you next time.